Lady. Lady. It didn't work at all. It <laughs> <laughs> didn't work at all. What was the point? I don't know. It kind of didn't work. Yeah. So there's no point. No point. All right. 10 seconds of silencio. Lady. <laughs> ten, 10 seconds? 10 seconds. Starting okay. now. Starting now. Hi there. Ho there. Hello there. And welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene, talk about Harvey Picar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists, which is what we are. I am Josh Newfeld of joshnewfeld.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. Hey, Dean. Josh. Today we are discussing scene number 28 of American Splendor, and it starts at 1 hour, 28 minutes, and 12 seconds, and lasts exactly 3 minutes to 1 hour, 31 minutes, and 12 seconds. And it is known as the Who is Harvey Picar scene, or the Harvey Picar name story scene, and it opens on a cloudy blank screen... A line is drawn, and Harvey Picar appears following the line and starts talking about his name and how when he first got his own apartment and his own listing in the telephone book, he realized that there were two other Harvey Picars in the phone book, which he found very strange. And he talks about these other Harvey Picars and how they follow him around in the phone book and appear and disappear as the years go by and how he was confused for being one of those Harvey Picars when one of them died, and you realized that that was the older Harvey Picar, and then there was a younger one who was his son, and in talking about all of this... Wait, just to say, the man who died's son, not Harvey's son. Right. Because it starts to sound right. confusing. confusing, <laughs> yeah. yes. So, meanwhile, while all of this soliloquy is happening, Paul Giamatti, playing Harvey Picar, in one long, uninterrupted take, is walking along in this animated environment, which his room is slowly taking shape, and then about halfway through, it kind of merges into this winter photographic landscape of the back of what I think is the hospital where Harvey works, or maybe the hospital where he was having his treatment. And... It ends on this very poignant existential question of what is a name and who is Harvey Picar? And it's one of my all-time favorite scenes in the movie and is based on one of my all-time favorite comics. Mm -hmm. So that's a very sketchy and quick recap of the scene, but I, I really want to dig into it. I mean, we can dig into it, but I really feel like this is what makes the movie. This is what the movie's about, this mm. scene, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, because, you know, we were talking in past episodes about identity existential crisis legacy mm -hmm. and that's all confronted in this monologue right which of course is following right on the previous scene where harvey as played by paul giamatti which you like yep. to mention yep. it, 
had actually questioned the nature of his own existence and whether he was making this comic series about himself or whether he was merely a character in a comic book. And he's on the precipice of life and death at this point in, right. in the story, in the movie, because of the cancer. And exactly. Will he make it? And we don't know yet, you know, because the answer will, I guess, arrive in the next scene. There's only two more scenes after this. Right. Yeah. So we've been building it works up. out for him. Me too. But we've been building up to this scene. Mm-hmm. Which is all a dream, basically. It's a dream, but it's it's a conversation he clearly has in his head, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of Harvey Pekar's American Splendor stories are, involve other people, usually. Or, you know, you'll get inside his head of what he's thinking about, but there's always a situation. The situation here is himself, mm-hmm. you know, and dealing with this existential crisis and what is a name. And I don't know. Everybody can identify with this. In fact, one of the things he talks about is... He was surprised that somebody else had the name Harvey Picar. And yeah. I'll, I'll admit, I don't think I know any other Picars. I've probably seen Picar in something, and it always makes me think of Harvey when mm-hmm. I see that, but it's rare. And then as I was watching this scene or when I read the comic, there's no other Dean Haspiels. In fact, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, for a long time, the only Haspiels I knew were in my immediate family, and there weren't many Haspiels. Wait, the people in your immediate family were also named Haspiel? Oh, got, got it. Okay. <sighs> So, but I'm talking about like five or six people tops, right? you know, right. and it was always like, I felt like a bastard in America or something. And then later on, I found out that there were two brothers named Haspiel that came from Austria and there was a falling out. Oh. And then one of them, and this is, my dad thinks this, so I'm not sure this is true, but one of the brothers decided to drop the I from Haspiel, H-A-S-P-I-E-L, to oh, Haspel. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of Haspels oh, interesting. in America. Yeah. In fact, they used to spell my name wrong as Haspiel instead of Haspiel with the mm-hmm. I. And then there was Haspel clothing. And my dad had an ad up in my bedroom when I was a kid. And you visited me back way back in the day. So mm-hmm. you may even remember this a little bit. But there's like a beach and there's a, a man wearing like really cool clothes on the beach. And he's dug in the, the sand with a stick, the brand name Haspel. Oh. And Is I, it an American uh, clothing company or like know. German I, or something? Because it's a German name. It's basically a German name, yeah. right? So I don't know. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know if they still have mm-hmm. clothes. I think they were successful. Obviously, they had an ad campaign in the New York Times and stuff like that. So, oh, wow. Okay. But I don't know what happened to it. And this is before Google and, frankly, right. my interest in the Haspel. I think there's know. a Haspel in the Trump administration. Like Gina Haspel yeah, is, is like actually. national security director And when I or saw that, I jumped. So she's probably related to you. But I think about the people whose names are Smith or Jones or mm-hmm. even my girlfriend, Jen Ferguson. There's mm-hmm. a ton of Fergusons, sure. right? So yeah. when you see a name... On television, they probably don't blink like that. Right. But Haspiel and then Haspel, mm-hmm. I admit it kind of irks me or, or, or freaks me out a little bit or I don't know what to do with that information mm-hmm. because I've always felt very unique and original because there wasn't a Dean Haspiel right. or not many Haspiels. Yeah. And because of Facebook and other social media, other Haspiels have been creeping out and, and reaching out a couple people. But no the, Dean Haspiels. No, there's only one Dean Haspiel. There can I mean, be and always shall only be one Dean Haspiel. Right. What about Josh Neufeld? There are a lot of Josh Neufelds out there. <laughs> I found that out through Facebook as well. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into that after. Okay. I want to talk more about the sure. scene. So in the construction of the scene, as you pointed out, it starts with the line being drawn. And then when you said that, yeah, it made me think like the line is drawn. 
oh. the term, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe that was part of what they were going for here. Like hmm. a line is being drawn in the sand, you know, of sorts. Right. But what was really cool, it, it had the sound of like a pencil or a marker or something mm-hmm. when it was made. And I don't know, does that continue throughout the scene as, as it animates, you know, with the drawings? I don't think so. I'd have to go back and look at it again, but I think it just starts out with that and right. then that part fades away so that we can pay attention to his monologue right and it's a very minimal scene regardless like obviously and even when they add cinema to it you know this kind of back of a hospital wherever it was and even there's even a a post that he kind of Mm -hmm. walks behind like an old telephone pole right but what you didn't mention was at one point it almost looks like a ghost of the real real harvey picard wearing the same clothes the same outfit that paul giamatti is wearing and he's kind of limping or kind of just slowly crawling across uh he's not crawling he wa- he's walking across he's walking yeah. but there's something he's about wa- i'm walking here <laughs> but i mean maybe it's also because i don't know if harvey but he was... fades away like a ghost he fades away but it's yeah. almost like he's walking to his death mm-hmm. you know? well that's an eerie thing because it's at that moment that paul giamatti harvey is talking about the father and son that's right and so then there's this weird moment where you're like wait this guy's playing that guy Mm -hmm. but he's young enough to be his son and Mm -hmm. then there's this weird like it just makes you start thinking one thing i might have added to the mix is yes they kind of ape R. Crumb's art style with the animated, you know, animating mm-hmm. the room and some of the props, like a phone and stuff like that. And that's kind of like, is associated with Harvey Picard, that style a lot, because it, it kind of broke the doors open in, in a way. But when you you match it up with the comic, the source material, yeah, he looks nothing like Harvey Picard. Right. The character. That, that's right, so let's talk about that. So the original comic was in American Splendor number 2, 1977. It was illustrated by Robert Crumb. And it's 48 panels of just a man shot from about the mid-chest up, just looking directly at the reader with a blank wall behind him with a little shadow cast on it, almost like a comedian at a nightclub or something. Or just like talk- a common... I, to me, I saw it as the common man at the time, mm-hmm. the way... Crumb might draw the common man. Like yeah, with the he hair does not side look parted. like does not look like Harvey Picard at all. And yeah. I think that actually was brilliant. And first of all, it's, and it's called the Harvey Picard name story, mm-hmm. the comic. And I thought that was really smart. Like for a long time, I thought, why does it look like Harvey Picard? Yeah. Well, it's because it's a Harvey Picard. Mm. Think of it like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so and he's wearing a suit too, which Harvey, the, our right. Harvey Picard, would never wear. And I wish Harvey was alive today because I want to know: Did he direct that that way? I've always wondered that too. I mean, we could ask Crumb if we ever meet him. Yeah. You know? Or did Crumb take liberty and kind of make commentary based on the material, the mm-hmm. story? I'm going to draw a common man, like another Harvey Picard. Mm-hmm. You know, or imagine one of the Harvey Picards you're talking about in this story. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. It's funny because for years and years and years, I didn't allow myself to acknowledge that that wasn't Harvey Picard in that Mm. drawing. I thought, well, Crumb was doing a really cartoony style and maybe he didn't actually know Harvey that well and he was just doing like a very simple version of him. But I've come over the years to realize, no, he definitely was not drawing Harvey. At all. Yeah, I'm I'm so curious about that. Yeah. About that choice. I mean, it's probably a choice. I know that Harvey, working with him, often left certain things up to us as the artist, mm-hmm. you know? And, but then he'd be very particular about certain right. details. Because all the other stories, basically, in all the American Splendors, he was pretty clear to the artist right. that we were supposed to draw Harvey Picard with the very specific characteristics. But early on, you're talking about American Splendor number two, yeah. 
didn't he have a different name too? A Harvey in the comic? The Bellboy or something? Or Bellhop? Oh, or? Uh, yeah, he would call himself Jack the Bellboy. Jack the Bellboy. So, I mean, that was early on, so maybe there was a liberty being taken on purpose, you know, as well. You know, it was before, like, I guess Harvey maybe owned that in American Splendor, you know, it would be about him and tell his stories and the people around him. Yeah, also, and also he called himself Herschel sometimes. That's right, Herschel. And our man. And was he drawn differently, though? No, he always was he always drawn. Like Harvey. This was the only comic from those, you know, first 10 issues of American Splendor that I can remember where he specifically didn't really look like himself. So, so in, in issue number two of American Splendor, what year would that be and how old would Harvey have been writing this story? So he was born in 38, okay. I think. And so this was 77. So he would have been just about 40. So he was having a midlife crisis, <laughs> basically. Well, as we've established, you can have an ongoing midlife crisis oh, that yes. just keeps going for decades. That's right. But yeah, I was also thinking like this was one of his earliest collaborations with Crumb. I mean, I know they had done a couple of stories, more underground-y stories that predated American Splendor. And they were still kind of getting to know each other as collaborators. Mm -hmm. So maybe this was Crumb's idea and who knows what the choices were. And maybe Harvey was just so happy to have Crumb illustrate. Because if you remember in the first issue of American Splendor, there was only a two-page story by Crumb in all 48 pages or whatever of what mm -hmm. it was. And there was even a little note on the cover that said, don't be fooled, folks, drawn by Crumb. Mm -hmm. Don't be fooled, folks. I only have a two-pager in here. Right. So in issue number two, there's a lot more contributions from Crumb, and they're really starting to like dig into this collaboration. So but, maybe they were being more experimental. And But because it's a Harvey Picard identity story, yeah, it, had it seems to like been, a very specific choice. It is. Yeah. It absolutely is. And also just, it's such a tour de force of comics to me, like of the potential of comics to tell really quiet and subtle stories. Mm -hmm. And... I think there have been many imitators of this kind of style that, mm -hmm. and none of them have equaled what they do here because it's just so minimal. And it's so much about the, well, it's so much about the words and the meaning of the words more than anything else. But it's also just about these little tiny gestures and the quiet moments, the silent panels, the moments where you're forced to pause as the reader. And I think in one of the things they do really well when they translate it into film is that Paul Giamatti really digs into his impression of Harvey. So in the monologue as it's filmed, he's doing all sorts of little ticks and gestures and head scratches and gyrations of his face. Right. And he comes right up to the camera and he's looking right at the camera pretty much the whole time. Right. And I feel like they really tried in their way to match filmically what's happening mm -hmm. in the comics. And I feel like two things. One, to draw just a medium shot of someone talking it may look easy to the reader once it's done, but to me that's one of the hardest things to draw mm -hmm. because of nuance, because of gestures, because you gotta identify one word in you know the text of that panel that kind of portrays or compliments or adds another sense of value to that text. Mm -hmm. And it could be really difficult because you might just wanna draw the same face over and over again in some way you know right. and but that's in itself can be a challenge as an artist to challenge. match your own drawing of your and, character yeah true and yet it can look boring too depending mm -hmm. on who pulls it off yeah and i thought it was interesting that in the one take of this scene that paul giamatti performs i think when they broke the fourth wall before in the movie it felt more like an interview you know meaning when you're talking to the real joyce and the real harvey right 
there's more of an interview aspect to it. Like yeah, the documentary. Documentary behind the scenes mm-hmm. kind of feel. This is the first time that I think that Paul Giamatti characters ever looked directly at the camera, right? And he's talking to you. Mm-hmm. Talking about himself. Right. Because he's having this midlife crisis. But it might almost be like he's talking to himself. Like he's talking sure. out of his dream into the mind of this of the sick Harvey Picker. Because it's important to note, too, that in this, he's a healthy vibrant version of himself that's right and he's got all the harvey picard ticks mm-hmm. like i wondered when this was shot was it shot early on in production or later on because he really has harvey down yeah in this there's another comic book that came out recently called heroes in crisis by uh, written by tom king mm-hmm. and the artist's name escaped me which is awful i hate that i don't know if you can look it up i think it was like eight issues or something like that and he employs what i'll call the confessional this feels like a confessional in the comic. It feels like a confessional in the uh, the movie, even though it's exploring a philosophy here of life. And in Heroes in Crisis, it started off and ended, it was bookended by superheroes and supervillains talking to the camera, standing by oh, a wow. wall. Interesting. You know, and I have to admit, it didn't really work for me. There mm-hmm. are aspects that kind of worked, and maybe I need to reread it. And because you're jumping around to a lot of other characters, you know, one character might have one panel of a confessional and then one might have four and one might have a whole page, depending Mm. about what was being conveyed. But really they were just dealing, it was almost like, what's the TV show where it's a bunch of like real life people and they're playing some kind of dumb house game where they're trapped for a month or something. But Is it Big Brother? Something like that. And they go into a room. and Yeah. It's sort of a trope of these reality shows is like yeah. they come out of it and then they're interviewed about what's going on. Or behind the scenes or the, what yeah. they think's going to happen. Right. And, you know, or they're sort who, of commenting and... Sure. Or, or how they're going to bamboozle somebody or mm-hmm. something, you know. Who was the artist on Heroes in Crisis? Is it Clay Man? Clay Man, that's right. So... Again, this is a trope that's been used in comics. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this was the first time it was used in American Splendor, you know, yeah. illustrated in this way. I'm sure it had been done in film before sure, that. Sure, sure. And obviously interviews and documentaries. Mm-hmm. It almost felt like a Lenny Bruce routine because a lot of his routines were like not necessarily comedic. They were mm-hmm. him just talking about like everything that was going on in his Mark life. Marin does that. That's part of his quote comedy uh-huh. is to kind of work out some issue mm-hmm. in front of you. And if he can find the funny parts, great. Right. But it's more of a confessional. Yeah. And actually, we've talked about this before. We thought that maybe... Harvey early on before doing comic books mm-hmm. might have been like a failed comedian. Yeah. No, totally. I think that was sort of the whole thing about him being on the corner with the guys mm-hmm. was that they were all just trying to entertain each other, you mm-hmm. know, but like in a not fake way and not like a necessarily like a, you know, would get you on Johnny Carson or David Letterman, but right. just sort of like a very authentic. Yes. But also finding the humor when when it comes naturally. Or like, like when Spike Lee and like Do the Right Thing has the one the, of my favorite movies ever. The Greek chorus of like the, the black dudes on the corner sitting in the chairs mm-hmm. commenting on you know life and the world and the deli or or that mook or that idiot over there mm-hmm. or whatever and those are great characters and in fact. One of the successes of Star Wars is C-3PO and R2-D2. They're basically there for us. Mm-hmm. They they're like know, the stand-in for the audience. And they don't know everything that's going on, so they're right. kind of the eyes and ears for us that kind of travels throughout these adventures. And then you get to experience the Force, Jedis, you know, the yeah. dark side, the light side, all this stuff. Han Solo, you know, like, and I think... Yeah, he, well, this is like Star Wars Minute. We're talking about Star Wars. <laughs> oh my God, finally. <laughs> Finally, it took 28 episodes. <laughs> God, you got so happy just then. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a great device to use. And I think 
this is clearly an edited version. This is like a three-minute scene or something. Yeah. It kind of picks up the monologue in the movie, picks up about halfway through the original comic. Of the comic. Which talks more about the origin of his name and right. um, sort of like how kids made fun of him when he was younger and all right. of that sort of stuff. And we kind of establish that in the very first scene yeah, of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Good um, callback. So the line that sticks out for me, and he's really looking at us when he's saying this, Paul Giamatti, is, mm-hmm. Picard, is who are these people? Where do they come from? What do, what they, do they do? do? What do they do? I know. I love that. That one yeah. kills me. Me too, because if I were writing this monologue, that would not have been the question I would have asked. And I right. love that he asks it. And that, again, goes back to that nightmare that he had, Working Man's Nightmare, where he woke up and he didn't know what he did for a living. Mm-hmm. And then he mm-hmm. woke up from that nightmare to say, I have a job. I have a job. I have, I have a, job. a job. And funny, the, the thing, if I have to admit, like, whenever I'm hanging out with people, or meet new people. It's not who are they, where they come from. It's what do they do. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean how do they make money necessarily. Right. What are you doing with your life? And mm. I think it's because growing up as a kid, my dad always like impressed upon me. You need to be doing something with your life. Do something. Mm-hmm. You know, like don't be a drifter. Don't be a drift. Don't sit around just watching TV or whatever. Yeah. Make something. You mm. know, create. Interesting. And that's interesting coming from your dad because he didn't have a. A full-time job. He, but he, he is always he's working. always working. If you something. ask him, yeah. he's he'll never get everything done, and I right. don't exactly know what that is anymore. Mm-hmm. But he's always working. Right. You know, as far as he's concerned, he's not just passively That's letting right. life go by. That's right. And I feel like when I've been around people who are passively letting life go by, I get rankled by that, and I know that I kind of judge people and. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to be better about that because it's not my life, it's your life, right? right? Yeah. But then I find myself being allergic to you and I don't want to be around people like that. I noticed now you first were talking about people and now it's me that you're referring to. <laughs> Josh, <laughs> I've been meaning to tell you something. <laughs> you need to make nine. I'm making a podcast. You are. You need to make nine more. <laughs> okay. Different ones. Yeah. So I, and, and then as I said earlier, boil down this scene and yet this movie is about three things, identity, existential crisis, and legacy. Mm-hmm. And this scene covers all of it that. has it all, yeah. It makes you think about your life mm-hmm. in those terms. And your name. And your name. And this is the bigger question, since we talk about ourselves as well. Are we moving on from the scene? Because I still want to talk about okay, some get, stuff get, from the scene. Sure, please do. And then we'll do that. So there just were a couple of things that like I noticed about each element of it that I wanted to just remark on so one is the very opening when the line is drawn and then harvey then paul giamatti appears and it is one continuous take all the way through which is also impressive but that line being drawn by his body moving reminds me of this great children's book that i loved as a kid did you know harold and the purple crayon by crockett johnson yes i absolutely loved those books Mm -hmm. because the kid was an artist and he was drawing his own world as he was moving through it. And he literally would have a pencil and he'd say, oh, well, I want to, you know, take a walk. And then he would draw like up two lines going away, you know, towards a vanishing point. And then he would, and it would become a road and he mm-hmm. would walk down that road. And then he would draw a dragon because he wanted to 
beat a dragon and he would draw buildings and and ships and all sorts of things and it was always in the same like kid-like style and it was always just with this one purple crayon and it was just such a cool concept and carried through so great in but, those books and, but now you're talking about destiny and fate in a way hmm. like the clash of mm -hmm. like following a destiny but what is fate is it already written right there's that idea that in that tv show first season of true detective yeah where the matthew mcconaughey character is basically saying positing that time is a flat circle mm -hmm. and i kept thinking about what does that mean what does that mean yeah and does that mean that we've already lived our life but slowly our bodies and minds are catching up to it hmm like interesting and you know how you have like these premonitions or ghost feelings or you have this feeling of what's deja coming vu. or deja vu yeah it's because maybe you've already done it right and yet you're slowly, as your body is capable, is mm -hmm. walking towards the end of it or right. something. You Which know? gets you into like the idea of the matrix and sure. things like that. Yeah, I was just away on a teaching gig for a week or so last week. And during dinner one day, we were all having this conversation about, you know, the nature of reality and whatever. And all of a sudden, everyone in the group just sort of accepted the probability that we're all just like characters in a simulation you know, created by robots. They're like, yeah, most likely this reality that we're living in is just the artifice of a program made by some high-level oh computer. God. And I was like, wait, what? When did we all agree that that was no, the case? not at all. And uh, they were all like, yeah, yeah, that seems like, you know, a lot of scientists have said that that's most likely the scenario. No. And I no, just was no. really disturbed by that. No. Not only because, you know, existentially, I want to believe that I'm actually living this life and right. my consciousness is my own and not predetermined. But also, like, since when did we all agree Surrender. that we're, yeah, that, that we're Give just... Up part of the Terminator or something. Like I, or that, maybe it's because dark. of the current political climate. People yeah. would rather just surrender thinking, well, there's nothing I can do anyway. Right. You know? Yeah, there's a very hopeless mm. you know, sense of surrender to that. I keep thinking about what would Harvey be writing right now? Yeah, in this even more intense era of life, yep. live digitally and through social media and yep. so on. But so, yeah, I really love that Harold and the Purple Crayon reference. And it also was really, it was interesting to me that the story, which is so minimal and so internal about his life and his relationship to his own name, that that scenario that's drawn at the beginning of this monologue is just the bare interior of a room so it's like representing that first apartment that he got and then this phone appears because it's about his name in the phone book and it's this old-fashioned phone and we hear it ring a couple of times but he never interacts with it physically and then he goes through part of the monologue and then it fades into the filmed scene in the back of the hospital and the ghost of the real Harvey P. Carr walks by and then we see that this scene now is actually a view through a picture window mm -hmm. and he steps through that window and back into the apartment that he had been in before except now it slightly has has a little more character to it and it's drawn like you were saying almost exactly the way Crumb would have drawn it with those little hash marks and like squiggly lines and stuff but now it's a room that has a picture window a little picture hanging on the wall and a chair with a book on it and again it's a very simple ascetic life that's being portrayed of a man who just lives in his mind or mm -hmm. reads and the phone isn't there anymore but he continues to talk about how his name was mm -hmm. a recurring theme in the phone book so it's just really fascinating and beautifully realized filmically
while still calling back to the original comics. Absolutely. And, and also, I mean, I'm just thinking in my own head right now how I would have directed that scene. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, the source material, the comic book is really strong in it being kind of a spotlight on one person gesturing and telling and reacting to his own story mm-hmm. versus like someone kind of meandering through this blank space that then slowly but surely becomes populated as you said into the most basic of rooms mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so it's not even like the philosophical debate he was having with himself even he didn't have a yacht or because he didn't care know, about any it doesn't of that matter stuff. It's yeah just and who, we could see from the way he decorated his previous apartments yeah. that he literally uh, his house is just a receptacle for the things that are most important it's to a him. shelf his house is a shelf yeah. for the stuff he loves and yeah it's i don't know i feel like this is the part of the movie where this is what it's all about. Yeah. And then it throws it into your lap mm-hmm. and makes you think about yourself. Yeah. At all that point, you're a voyeur and you can connect to certain things, a funny date night. What was your first date like, you know, yeah. and this stuff right. and that. What would you be like if you got cancer? Mm-hmm. But this one really becomes profound mm-hmm. because of what he talks about and the idea of what do they do? Mm-hmm. What do you do? You are they. Yeah. You could be Harvey Picard too. Right. And the fact is that this scene is never resolved in the movie. Like, it is it is outside of the narrative. Thematically, like you say, it's 100% what this whole movie is about. But it kind of is just there. Like, mm-hmm. it's not picked up on. I'm, well, to, actually, to give you a little spoiler for what happens in the next scene, Harvey, you know, it's after his episode with cancer and his life starts to kind of resolve itself into a, a happier ending. But that question that's brought up in this three-minute scene is never directly referred to ever again. But it's also a short film, if you think Mm -hmm. about it. Like, it could exist without the rest of the movie. Exactly. And still work really well. Right. But it's interesting that it is kind of shoehorned into this movie outside of the narrative, in a sense. Like, it, it was really brilliant of the filmmakers to take that episode from our cancer year where Harvey's asking these questions about who he is and whether he exists or not, and then have this callback to a comic that he had literally done 15 years prior to that. Mm-hmm. And it fits together beautifully mm-hmm. and works right in with the narrative. And then, you know, we're able to pop back out of it and go on with the rest of the movie and the rest of Harvey's life. Yep. Yep. So one interesting thing I was reading or I listened to on the commentary was that they shot that scene, the little monologue. Or What's the difference between a monologue and a soliloquy? Because uh, I've heard this referred to. Both. I don't know. I mean, a monologue is one person telling a story. Yeah. Isn't that, but isn't, isn't that what a soliloquy is also? I guess so. Maybe, Maybe it's just a fancy yeah. word for the same thing. It sounds French to me, soliloquy. So or like fancy. Shakespearean or something. Yeah. So they shot that five different times, but it's one continuous take. So they had to go with one of them. And yeah, as we were saying, Jamadi really knocks it out of the park as he has this whole movie. Yep. But it's like he gets it. He doesn't just get who this character is and who this character in this movie is, but I feel like he understands what Harvey, something essential about his soul, you know? Mm -hmm. And what was the other thing? Oh, um, the filmmakers were talking about when they were trying to think of the different ways to shoot this scene, one of the ideas was to have the real Harvey Picard and the actor Paul Giamatti on some kind of turntable Mm -hmm. that was spinning around and around. And they ended up not filming that, but that was interesting that they were 
I'd love to talk to them and hopefully they'll come on and talk right. to us about what their generative process was for this scene and how they talked about making it happen. And of course, we need to give a huge shout out to Gary Lieb and Doug Allen oh, and John Kuramoto of Twinkle who made this thing come alive because I can only assume that they filmed the actual scene on like a green screen and then storyboarded the heck out of it to figure out how to make it work as an animated sequence. And Mm -hmm. it's really where, again, all of the various tricks and techniques that they utilize in this film really come into being, like Mm -hmm. just coalesce perfectly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's the scene of the movie. And I guess my question to you is, what comics have you done that deals with identity, existential crisis, legacy? I mean, you know, I've done a fair number of memoir comics. I mean, the one that I think of that might come closest to it was a story I did about my grandmother's death and her funeral and the way that I related sort of my own relationship to being Jewish, because I'm Jewish ethnically, but I'm not religious at all, and I don't I never was really brought up Jewish, so I felt very alienated at her funeral, which was like a very traditional Jewish funeral by all of the rituals. And, you know, there's some scenes where my mother and her brother, who, you know, my grandmother's children, are talking about all the rituals of grief that you're supposed to do as Jews. You know, you're supposed to tear your garments in half and you don't shave or cut your fingernails and you turn your mirrors to the wall and all of this sort of stuff. You suffer. Sitting Shiva, you know, it's all this ritual suffering and it just felt so false to me and I was trying to like connect with my actual grandmother and my thoughts and memories about her and trying to reconcile those with this ritual that was plastered on top of that and then I was comparing that experience to this funeral that Sari and I had gone to on the island of Bali in Indonesia a cremation ceremony where this well-known man of the village who had died had this whole ceremony devoted to him where the whole village came together and there was a big parade and they built all of these various effigies and stuff and then they cremated him and the various things that they had made all in a public pyre and everyone stood around and watched his body burn little by little and like how confusing that was to me you know and I was trying to connect it to that tradition you know so uh, that's probably the closest that I've come to that but I do teach this comic in a lot of workshops that I do because I find it's such a great way to get people to connect to making comics for the first time because it's so simple and everybody can draw like at least a face of themselves like everyone knows their own face and so they can they can mimic the style of this comic and just draw themselves looking straight at the reader talking about the origins of their name and i have all these various questions i think you and i have done workshops together mm-hmm. too where we where we did this where we asked them like what's the origin of your name who named you you know what's your middle name what's what name did kids make fun of you you know based on your name and i asked them all these questions they think about it for a while and then they do like a little one page homage to this comic and it, there's been such great responses to that and so many people have done I'm, I'm building a collection of all the different comics that various students of mine have done over the years in relation to this story and someday I'll do my version of it I was going to say that that's a great exercise and I remember doing that with you at Society of Illustrators and you have a bunch of great exercises and I might combine this with another one you do that I love where I think you ask everyone to draw themselves within in a minute 
You yeah. Give like a minute. Then yeah, the you next, have to dry yourself. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Like 45 seconds and 30 seconds yeah. and then 15 and then maybe five or something. And Which I have to say, I got that idea from Ivan Brunetti from his uh, book. Right. But so I would combine, like you start with these questions, right? So the first question, I would then have them maybe draw the minute version. Hmm. The second question, the 45 second version. Oh, right? interesting. So by the time you get to it, maybe it depends on the questions you're asking. Right. Maybe the last question is as profound as the five second drawing where they've had to reduce themselves down to a few lines. So where they're basically like imagining their response to that question in a drawing? So you have the drawing that they're mm -hmm. only allowed to draw in the time limit. Right. And maybe give them a little more time to do the text, you know, yeah. to really think about this question and answer, you know? Right. But again, in conjunction with the questions, mm -hmm. might also be work out with how they draw themselves. Interesting. You know, as they reduce it down. Boil it down. That reminds me of that famous R. Crumb comic, Stoned Again. Do you remember that one? So. Where it's just like a self-portrait of him, like four panels, I think, where he's like slowly dissolving mm -hmm. from taking acid and mm -hmm. his literally his face and form dissolves. So mm -hmm. by the f in the first panel, he just looks like really spaced out and happy. And then like as the comic progresses, he literally starts to melt. And mm -hmm. it's just, by the mm -hmm. end, is like a puddle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I miss so those kinds of comics. I don't think they get made anymore. I know. Just as like formalistic exercise, one page comic type of things. Yeah. And they were fun. That's what... When we did go, a lot of that stuff in Keyhole Mini Comics and Keyhole. I we know. Just having, we were learning the, the craft and we were trying all the different exercises you can do to kind of figure out comics. And figure out who you are and, and your identity. I feel like... And now we're old, you know, seasoned pros and we don't do stuff like that anymore. Well, I, I would, you yeah. know. And in fact, when you If you didn't have to get paid for making comics. But those workshops you've taught, I want to audit them. You know, I want to I have fun with that. And, you know, we can invite other pros to take... Part and mm -hmm. it can be really fun and interesting. I mean, like, we, like as a once a month kind of fun thing, get together yeah. sort of thing. Well, I mean, like you talked about doing that, or at least coming on the tail end of that in Chicago with, you know, a bunch of cartoons. Right, you right. Know? So, so and just finally to come back to the question you asked me about other Josh Newfelds. So yeah, I have found because of Facebook that Josh Newfeld is like a really common name. Mm -hmm. And that was weird to me because growing up, I was definitely an oddball. I grew up in an area where there weren't many other Jewish kids, had names like Joshua, Neufeld, you know. So I definitely was made fun of because of my name or, or people would never remember my name. They'd call me Jasper or Jason or Justin or Jonathan or like any variation of J. And now, so there's a Joshua D. Neufeld, I think, who's like a a biologist in Canada and he's published some stuff and I often get Twitter things that are meant for him that are sent to me because he's Josh D. Newfeld and I'm just Josh Newfeld. And I even we connected with each other because of our shared names and I ended up drawing his Twitter icon that he uses. That's so funny. He asked me to do that and I was happy to do that. And then there's another Josh Newfeld who's like a twenty one year old baseball player, like the college player who's and like pretty good baseball. and I love baseball. So I wish I were him, <laughs> uh, but he gets written up in various like local, you know, cause I get like a Google alert mm -hmm. for my name. So I often get like stuff about his latest exploits on the diamond. But uh, yeah, it is weird to have other people out there with your same name. It just, it's a, it's disconcerting. So I'm, never I'm, know. I'm I will never envious know. <laughs> of you. You literally are unique. Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever done, what's your closest that you've done to a comic like this? I was actually, because when I asked you the question, obviously I was thinking about what I've done, and I feel like I've attempted it in my autobiography comics, but really I feel like it's more explored my existential being yeah. in these 
characters, these avatars I create, right. whether it's Billy Dogma, the Red Hook or something. But then when I think about those guys, like often they operate better. The more you know about them is through their action and through other people or mm-hmm. situations where, you know, deeds, not words. Kind yeah. Of thing. But when I write plays, I feel like I get more internal. Mm. I, I think that's right. I think your plays are probably where you mostly are putting you, Dean Haspiel, out on the page slash stage. So I maybe it's the medium, you know, like yeah. I feel like I'm trying to have more fun in visual comics, mm-hmm. you know, where the, the real estate of the page is unlimited and you can do anything you want, the budget and all that, you know, like, yeah. whereas the theater has a certain limitation to it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's actor standing right. in a small space. But it is kind of funny because I've seen like in your most recent play, you had like four different characters who at different times were saying things verbatim that I've heard you you personally state yeah. and feel. And they were like one was an African-American guy. One was a young woman. Mm-hmm. Another one was, you know, like sort of a deadbeat guy. Like mm-hmm. it was just really interesting to mm-hmm. see all these different types, but all expressing different statements that i've heard you express over the years that I'm are very complex, personal man I'm a, I'm a black man i'm a woman i'm a white yep idiot it's like prince, <laughs> I'm like prince. Yeah. I, yeah i always come back to it what was it Con- in, on controversy controversy yeah that's right that's right actually it's funny because we've discussed the possibility of maybe extending this podcast to a season two to a season two with movie. a certain singer songwriter uh, the purple rock one. musician the that's purple right. one yes with the, with two, the purple crayon tbd <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I could just talk about this scene forever and this comic forever, but but it's funny because this is the scene that resonates probably with us and anybody who watches the movie the most. And I feel like this is the one that, no matter how long we talk about it, it has to be seen mm-hmm. and digested and mulled over yeah. and thought about from the viewer. It's up to the viewer to get out of it what they can yeah. from this. And that reminds me, I played for you a little excerpt of the stage version of American Splendor from, I think, around 1990, where Dan Castaneda, uh, Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson from the <laughs> Simpsons cartoon. Um, does his version of this monologue. And he actually reads verbatim the original Harvey Picard name story. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear his take on it because he has a very different approach to the character of Harvey Picard mm-hmm. and the pace at which he does it. But it's also, I think, very well done mm-hmm. and works in the radio format. So we'll put a link to that up on the website as yep. well. Yep. So anything else? I think that's it. All right. I will then wrap up this episode and remind you folks that you can visit us at scenebyscenepodcast.com and scenebyscene on Facebook where you can join the discussion, subscribe, download past episodes, read up on the show, and check out our work, including all things Harvey Picar, and buy merch from our store. So until next time, we're running out of next times, this is Josh Newfeld And Dean Haspiel. With Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. 